Welcome to part two of this week's podcast. So the historical background of Section 52, there's a couple of things that are happening. And there's some deception that's happening. For example, some curious, this is a quote, uh, I got this from the Joe Smith papers, but, but it's from John Coral. Some curious things took place. The same visionary, the same visionary and marvelous spirit spoken of before got hold of some of the elders. It threw one from his seat to the floor. It bound another so that for some time he could not use his limbs nor speak. And some of the curious effects were experienced. But by a mighty exertion in the name of the Lord, it was exposed and shown to be from an evil source. So you have this, this deception and this, this kind of this evil influence. But then contrastingly, which happens so often in our life, the preaching of Joseph Smith, although we don't have uh, a detailed record of it, is described in really exalted ways. Polly Pratt recalled that Joseph, Joseph Smith, quote, spake in great power as he was moved by the Holy, Holy Ghost and the spirit of power and testimony rested upon the elders in a marvelous manner. Levi Hancock remembered Joseph Smith teaching that the kingdom of God, kingdom that Christ spoke of that was like a grain of mustard seed was now before him and some should see it put forth its branches and the angels of heaven would someday come like birds to its branches just as the Savior said, and some of you shall live to see it come with great glory. Some of you must die for the testimony of this work. And then here's the, here's the powerful moment, I think. Hancock added that Joseph Smith then addressed Lyman White and said, You shall see the Lord and meet him near the corner of the house. Following a blessing from Joseph Smith, White reportedly stepped out on the floor and said, I now see God and Jesus Christ at his right hand. Let him kill me. I should not feel death as I am now. Wow. So so you've got to understand that this is temple-like experiences. Mm. Going back to our beginning, right? God is, is trying to to get his saints prepared to be in his presence. The law of obedience, the law of sacrifice, the law of the gospel, the law of chastity, the law of consecration. And in a, f- in a few minutes here, we're going to talk about the, the obedience that is required of them. But they're beginning to have these temple experiences where they're parting the veil and beholding the face of God. That uh, Joseph promised them that they would receive an endowment. Some of them would, if they're prepared, receive an endowment. And it seems as though that his, in his mind, endowment means beholding the face of God. There seems to be this mm-hmm. connection there that's really, really powerful. And uh, President Faust, you're, you may be familiar with this, but he gave a talk, I believe it was at, um, at BYU, and it was later published in... When we start to think about endowment this way, and when we start to think about uh, our opportunities, you can see that the temple is the context for the restoration. Like it's the con, like that's what we're doing, and and so as you think about um, section fifty-two specifically, and this conference where people have seen the face of the Son of God, you've got to see. This, this conference is an outgrowth of these temple covenants. So now in their personal lives, they're going to be asked to be obedient to a really difficult commandment. 
and it's going to require incredible amounts of sacrifice. And it, they're not going to be perfect at it. Um, they're, they're just not. And some will choose to be faithful to the law of the gospel and will repent and do better in the future. And some will, will use this as a springboard out of the church. But, but it seems clear that God is trying to create a people who are ready to be in his presence, a people that are ready to live the covenants of the temple so that he can manifest himself to them, so that he can be in their presence. And so you have a series of, of information, a, a series of mission calls, right? Yeah. <laughs> One after another, after another. <laughs> And, and you absolutely see that some of them are going to, they're, they're going to step up to the plate and they're going to be amazing missionaries. Some of them will step up to the plate and be good missionaries, but then fall away afterwards. Some of them, you know, there's just a, 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 a large mixture of reactions, which is the case for us today. Now we see also in the beginning of the section that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon are asked to go to the land of Missouri to identify the land of their inheritance. They know that the land of their inheritance, they know that Zion is is coming. And so this is this is of great anticipation for them, right? They they know that this is coming and they're excited. Um, but also there's there seems to be a sense of urgency here in terms of their traveling to locate the land of of Zion. And so they actually go by stage. A number of them go by stage, Sydney and Joseph. Which is going to take a, a three-week walk and turn it into a like a. <laughs> well, you, you know, laugh about it, but that's what these people are called to do, right? Yeah, you know, they're so hard. They're called to walk to Missouri for the next conference, preaching along the way and taking different routes. This reads a lot like a uh, mission president's uh, whiteboard in his office, right? You've got uh, <laughs> verse 22 is Thomas B. Marsh, you're with Ezra Thayer, you're going. Ezra Booth, you're with Isaac Morley. Edward Partridge, you're with Martin Harris. Martin Harris. Uh, uh, and take David Whitmer, Harvey Whitlock. Yep. Yep. Salma Hancock, Simeon Carter, Edson Fuller. And and there, there really is an issue. So, so let, speaking of walking... Uh, can you imagine you're walking down the road, preaching the gospel, you've got, um, basically on Google maps right now, you can, you can make it from Ohio to Missouri in about 800 miles, but we're not talking about that, right? This is a long time ago. There aren't direct routes. So we're probably talking more like eight, nine, maybe a thousand miles. And particularly these people are taking different routes. So all that in context so, so here you are walking down the, the road. Let's say your name is Ezra Booth and Joseph passes by with his companions and they're just flying down. Right? They're on and the they're stage. Just, they're sitting down on the stage. Then they're just flying. Uh, what would that do for you? Right? The mission leaders say there's a vehicle fast. All of the missionaries have to walk and some smart aleck missionary says, well, president, are you and the assistants going to be walking too? Um, no, we're driving. Doesn't yeah. this this could create some some challenge? And this is another element for Ezra Booth. This and the argument with Edward Partridge are significant parts of his disconnection and mm. and and what he sees as as the power dynamic that Joseph is initiating in the church that 
that he emphasizes in his articles to the Iowa Star that eventually make it into Mormonism Unveiled. I want to mention one thing before we keep going here is that on April 30th, Emma gives birth to twins um, who live three hours. So this is child uh, number two and three that she's had, and she's lost all three. Um, and they are led, later identified in their in the family records as Thaddeus and Louisa. Um, now, th- they are going to adopt here also this summer. Um, on May 9th, they're going to adopt twins of John and Julia Murdoch when Julia uh, dies in childbirth. So all of this is happening in their personal lives. I, I just think it's important that we mention, uh, you know, here Lehman Copley takes back his land and Joseph's, you know, this kind of lands in Joseph's and Edward's lap. And they're also dealing with personal tragedy. So you get this variety of of missionaries. In fact, let's go to one more. Heman Bassett in verse 37. He doesn't participate in the missionary work. He's a part of the group in Ohio that are converted, that are part of the family, that that kind of have all things common. Um, They Mm. they stay on Isaac Morley's farm. That was before, the family was before the church got to Kirtland, right? They were trying to live this that looked like the, the... the Acts, Book of Acts, everybody has everything in common, but it doesn't go well. It, it doesn't go well, right? And um, Heman Bassett is actually, he actually takes the pocket watch of, of Levi Hancock. He takes the pocket watch right out of his pocket. It's in the family. Yeah. yeah. It's like this, this is just, and then he sells it. <laughs> he takes right? it to a pawn shop. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I just, you know, and, and Levi Hancock's like, this does not set well with me. Right. But, but uh, we, and it doesn't seem like we know specifically why Heman Bassett is kind of called out here. In consequence of transgression, says verse 37, let that which was bestowed upon Heman Bassett be taken from him and placed upon the head of Simon's writer. So, so we don't know exactly why, but this doesn't work out for, for Heman Bassett, whether it's the pocket, why well, I don't know. It's, it's gotta be something, but. I think I read that he was only 16 at the time. I think I read Yeah, he's, that. he's very, he's very young. I don't uh, remember. I, I can't remember if he's 16 or 17 at this point, but when he's converted, he's young and, and yeah. full of promise. And then he doesn't, but, but Simon Ryder's the same way, right? Um, uh, mm-hmm. He thinks, in effect, that that God should have remembered the spelling of his name, right? If if this is done by the Spirit, if this whole revelatory scriptural thing is done by God, then he's going to get the spelling of my name right, right? And he he is incapable of letting complexity be a part of of religion, right? And and that's that's something we mm-hmm. deal with all the time today, right? Right. Uh, revelation is is complex and and challenging for all of us. And we make so, uh, we make certain assumptions that the Lord mm-hmm. has never claimed like if a prophet's a prophet he'll never misspell. Yeah. The Lord has never made that a rule, right. but somehow we get it in our head that yeah. that has to be a rule. We create our own assumptions. Yeah, and I think that's why the Lord said early in the revelations, we've mentioned it before, you're going to receive these words as if from my own mouth mm-hmm. in all patience and faith. And uh, that's a Simon's writer, uh, not a lot of patience and faith with with the prophet. Well, yeah, and you you get from the section one, right? You get from section one, I am God and have spoken it. These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness. The weakness of Joseph does not surprise God at all, right? After the manner of their language, that they might come to an understanding. And, and that's... 
I actually heard this joke from 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 Elder Holland. You might I think you were probably there, Hank, when Elder Holland came to the religion faculty and he said, you know, he, he the stereotypical joke about the Catholics believe in the infallibility of the the Pope, but none of them believe it. The Mormons believe in the fallibility of the prophet, but none of them believe that, right? And I believe it. it it, it it creates a, a weaker foundation if we hold prophets to a, a standard of perfection. It also negates our ability to be used by God. If God can only use almost perfect people to do his work, count me out, y'all. I know my sins better than anyone. Count me out. I can't. I cannot be used if if it requires almost perfection. That's important for us to understand. That's an idea from Adam Miller in his book, um, Letters to a Young Mormon. It's a it's a powerful, powerful thought. Our prophets aren't even probably what 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 they want to be and what God wants to be. They like they need repentance too, and and that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So this is interesting. I mean. I wouldn't have a problem. Well, I guess now that I, I have the 2020, you know, 2021 lens on, I have no problem with Joseph and Sydney and others taking the stage because the Lord wanted them to get to Missouri as fast as possible with these missionaries. He's saying, I want you to teach along the way. So they're both doing what they've been told to do. Yeah. They've been, uh, they've been yeah. both told, Hey, th- this is what I want you to do. So, uh, this is fascinating. But 800 um, miles in a pair of shoes makes you reconsider yeah, that, right? Yeah. And, and, and you, really, you really think about it. It's like, golly, that's, that, is, that is tough. And, and you might have a different perspective. But, but you get people that, uh, that you just get the whole spectrum. And, and going back to this idea of personal directions from God through the Spirit to us, the, those personal directions, sometimes they require great sacrifice, Isaac Morley has to sell his farm, right? I mean, it's just sell it and give you the income to the, the church. Like, really? How many of our listeners today would be willing to sell their home, move to something much smaller, and all the extra, give it to the cause of Zion? Yeah. If the prophet asked them to do that, would they be willing? That's a really, really significant question, and and we'll we'll get into to more of that as we go. But but this is what these people are asked to do, and and sometimes we we think, oh man, there's so many people that leave the church, but Edward Partridge leaves quite a bit of money when he goes to to Missouri. Yeah, right? Isaac Morley, same thing. He's gonna and we look down our noses at Lehman Copley, but. But he was going to give up a whole bunch of land. And and if you have a second property, if you have a cabin property, if you have a, a, a rental, if you have if you have a car beyond the number of drivers you have in your home, what if we were asked explicitly or even by the Spirit to, to say, we're building 20 temples this year. Do you think the temple building committee could use a little bit more, right? Like that's, it's an interesting and, and powerful concept that these, I think these sections require of us to ask if we're going to be true to these sections and true to what God is saying to these people, we need to to start asking some of those questions. So, so check this out from C.S. Lewis. This is a beautiful quote. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. 
I am afraid that o- that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comfort, comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. Now, this is not wow. an easy thing for us as Latter-day Saints to think about. But let me let me just suggest, are we... Are we, number one, capitalistic Americans, or are we, number one, Zion-centric disciples? God has made the rich and the poor he has constantly before him. Can we skip ahead and just read from section 56, verse 16 Woe be unto you rich men that will not give your substance. It doesn't even say give of your substance. It says give your substance to the poor, for your riches will canker your souls. And this shall be your lamentation the day of visitation and judgment and of indignation. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and my soul is not saved. But, But in like manner... The poor, verse 18, well, let's just read verse verse 17 first. Woe unto you poor men whose hearts are not broken, whose spirits are not contrite, whose bellies are not satisfied, and whose hands are not stayed from laying hold upon other men's goods. Wow. Whose eyes are full of greediness and who will not labor with their own hands, but blessed are the poor who are pure in heart whose hearts are broken and whose spirits are contrite, for they shall see the kingdom of God coming in power and great glory unto their deliverance, for the fatness of the earth shall be theirs. Um, you see undergirding all of this, the commandment to sacrifice, to be willing to, to, to fill the space between people with intense love. John, if, if if you saw one of your kids clothed in rags, is there any question that you wouldn't find the the appropriate way to clothe them? There's no question, right? Yeah. And in like manner, God is asking us to treat our the stranger on the street, our brothers and sisters in the humanity of God in like manner. To esteem our brother as ourself. That this is profound love. This is profound discipleship. This is not easy or casual Christianity. This is challenging Christianity. And it makes total sense why the names we're reading off, you're saying some could do it and some just couldn't do it. Because I'm I'm feeling this going... I don't know if I can do that, yeah. right? I And I think the Lord means it to be that way. I'm going to stretch you. I mean, look what he says in section 53, verse 2. This is a commandment, forsake the world, right? That is like, <laughs> that, 
l- let's just give a quick allusion to a, to a future discussion that, that we'll have. The apostasy that happens in Kirtland, according to Ron Esplin, um, he gives an article about the apostasy in Kirtland, and he says that this is not so much about the Kirtland Safety Society. This is not so much about the things we think it is. It's about the role of prophetic leadership. And you have people Mm. like Oliver Cowdery who say things like, my ancestors came across the waters among the first group of people to land in, in Plymouth. And I will not give away my freedom for anything less noble and great than what they sacrificed to establish American freedom on. Then you have God who's saying, the prophet that I'm going to send to you is not just going to be your minister on Sunday. He is going to be a prophet like unto Moses. He's going to be like Enoch. He's going to be a wild man who calls you to be and do more than you ever have been able to do and see and and be before. He's going to ask you to consecrate all of your property, all of your property, all of your time and talents and energy to building up the kingdom of God on the earth. Everything that you have. And and to be honest with you, I I love this C.S. Lewis quote because perhaps similar, we could say, oh man, this is, this, this, this is close to home. Uh, my wife and I, I hope this is okay for me to share something that I see as deeply personal. Um, my wife and I uh, very recently, maybe a few hours ago, maybe, <laughs> had this conversation about the the busyness of our lives. And we can absolutely overclutter our lives with with the thick of thin things. But we can also be about really good things that can burden and over overburden sometimes us. I'm, I'm guessing that that some of our some of the listeners and, and Hank and John, I'm guessing you felt this way before, where you just feel like oh, I'm doing so much to try and build the kingdom. I have a pure heart. I'm I'm trying to, but but this is hard. <laughs> yeah. This is I'm I'm walking 800 miles. To, to Missouri, but, but but I think if if we aren't trying to 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 have that balance between, am I taking care of my own personal and spiritual health, and am I giving enough? If we're not constantly kind of back and forth on that balance, you know, constantly trying to balance giving more to the Lord in time, talents, and energy. And making sure that we have enough to to raise our children right, and to to give our own physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional growth the time and attention that it needs. If if we're not constantly balancing those, then perhaps we're not engaged enough in the wrestle. You know, if if we're not willing to walk eight hundred feet to our neighbors and have perhaps a, a difficult conversation about how they're doing and, and minister to them, then we we perhaps maybe haven't learned the lesson that we need to learn from section 52. And then on the other side is the Lord can't draw water from an empty well. So you've got to be replenishing yourself. And that's a constant, yeah. that is a constant yeah. uh, back and forth that we all have to be 
you know, <laughs> like plate spinning, you know, those guys who plate spin, yeah. they're watching the one that's wobbling. Really? Are you giving way too much? And, and, and like, who are well, you giving it to? I'm not. Right? Yeah. Who are you giving it to? Cause, cause, uh, man, it, it, if, if our, if our kids get the leftovers of our, our, our best self, man, I don't, I don't know if that jives with section two of the Doctrine of Covenants. <laughs> I, I just yeah, don't know if that jives. <laughs> oh I like man! The phrase of of giving uh, first class attention to second class things, or and trying to give first class attention to first class things, and that that's a constant struggle to identify what's first class. And maybe I've gotten this a little bit wrong. So step number three, uh, covenant number three of the temple. I need to be willing to repent. I need to be able to say to my wife. I'm sorry. I love you. you. Our relationship and and our God is number one. Let's reassess. Let's repent where we need, and 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 then let's reapproach consecration and and new light. And and I I I I bring that up and I, I share that explicitly, hoping that my wife is going to be okay with it. But but also <laughs> um, as as this as as a hope, just a hope that that we can have models. Uh, th- this can be somewhat of a, a model for for relationships with with couples, where where you can see the reality of these temple covenants and how they can be lived in your personal life in a very mm. real way that can change your character, change your relationship with each other and with God, and 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 really be a catalyst to to prepare you to to see the face of the Son of God. That is an available blessing for us, an important one too. So in section 52, there's this really famous pattern from, from section, verse 14 to verse 19. Um, this is specifically given to Lyman White. This is a time period where people are being deceived. We, we learned about that in section 50, 43, right. um, 46. It's part of 46. It's part of 28. It's a constant theme about deception, which we have got to understand as members of the church. This is not just in the early days of the church. Elder Ballard gave a talk called The Trek Continues, where he specifically said that we have members of the church that are exchanging Christ-centered healing for money, right? Like this, these, are, these, these deceptions are not in the past. They're in our current realities. And you have this pattern to avoid deception. Verse 15, wherefore he that prayeth, whose spirit is contrite, the same is accepted of me if he obeyeth mine ordinances. He that speaketh, whose spirit is contrite, whose language is meek, and edifieth, the same is of God if he obey mine ordinances. And again, he that trembleth under my power shall be made strong and shall be bring forth fruits of praise and wisdom according to the revelations and the truths which I have given you. And again, he that is overcome and bringeth not forth fruits, even according to this pattern, is not of me. I love God's Emphasis on ordinances. I heard Tony Tony Sweat say this one time. He said, um, one of the the reasons why ordinances are good. You know, we live in a time period where ordinances are are kind of they're looked down upon. We don't really need ordinances, right? Like I can be I can be I can be spiritual without being religious, right? You can, but the statistics seem to bear out that your children and the next generation won't be able to do that. If you just be spiritual and leave the church and its ordinances, you might be able to be spiritual, but your children 
most likely will not have the same capacities. They will probably leave religion altogether. They will not know the the life-giving elements of ordinances. So anyway, this, this idea of tying ourselves to ordinances and avoiding deception, tying ourselves to, to prophetic leadership. Lyman White, case in point, did not do that. He becomes an he, he goes on his mission. He becomes an apostle of the Lord in 1840 or 41. And when Joseph dies, he thinks he feels like he's been called to go to Texas and establish the church in Zion in Texas. He leads a group of members of the church away from the body of the saints that head to, to Utah and goes to Texas to establish Zion. He feels like he's been called. He doesn't remember his ordinances. He doesn't remember prophetic leadership. And the patterns. He, he doesn't remember the pattern. And he's, I, I, I'm going to have to, to say, Texas becomes more important to him than Zion and the kingdom of God. He, he thinks that Texas and God and his kingdom are the same, but he's been deceived. We've got to, we got to be careful. We can be deceived. And it's not like Lyman White's a, a bad guy. I mean, he went through Liberty Jail with Joseph yeah, he's Smith. Not. And mm. as, as we already talked about, and he had revelatory visions, didn't he? We, he he's the one who saw the father and the son, right? He saw yeah. the father and the son. Yeah. He's deceived. And, and the Savior even says in Matthew 24, the very elect of God will be deceived. If you don't think you classify and you're listening to this bad podcast, well, maybe that's your first deception, right? Like we are living in a time period of prophets and apostles, covenants, ordinances, 20 temples announced. If you have access to a, a church, if you have access to the sacrament on a regular basis, I would say you are probably among the elect and therefore classify for the warning that Christ himself said the very elect are subject to be deceived. Hang on to your ordinances. Hang on to the prophet. Do not cut the cord that binds you to God and his prophets. And, you know, Tony Sweat said one time, I heard him say this, and I, I really love this. I really connect with this because you do have this mentality of, oh, I'm religious, but not spiritual. But he said, ordinances provide a, a motivation when you want to sin. Let's be honest. We wouldn't call temptation temptation if it wasn't tempting. Mm-hmm. And there are moments, there are moments where we're tempted. Like, let's just be real. We're tempted. That's okay. Um, and our ordinances can provide us with a little bit of a push to say, no, I'm going to be obedient. I made a, a, a promise to live the law of chastity. Therefore, I'm not going to look at this material online. I'm not going to, you know, It's the ordinance that gives you that strength it can mm. it can give you just that, that little idea. bit of extra strength to to, to make it through I, I i appreciated that from from tony um you know here here i want to to emphasize uh, I, I don't i don't want to encroach on your next your next um podcast but section 58 um verse 14 and 15 begin with edward partridge being rebuked because of this argument that we've we've talked about previously for this cause i have sent you hither and have selected you, my servant, Edward Partridge. This is verse 14. So verse 14, yea, for this cause I have sent you hither and have selected my servant, Edward Partridge, and have appointed unto him his mission in this land. But if he repent not of his sins, which are unbelief and blindness of heart, 
Let him take heed lest he fall. That blindness of heart really happens as the center place of Zion is established and identified. And he feels like this isn't it. Like this isn't it. The, the people and the place, we, we got something wrong here, right? And, and one of the things that I wanted to just bring up that I think is really, really beautiful is that Edward Partridge changes and he asks, he asks Joseph Smith to forgive him. So yeah. he asks, um, he asks Joseph Smith to forgive him, and he and Joseph are are completely reconciled. But he still has to invite his wife and five daughters to leave their their comfortable setting and move to Missouri, right? And and I I hope that that all of us are thinking. This is them giving more than is comfortable. This is this is doing away with that vacation to give to the Lord or or whatever the case may be. So so we've already talked about what Missouri consists of at this point. And we've talked about this argument that takes place. And um and then and then in, in section 57, he's asked to plant himself. Verse 14: Thus let those of whom I have spoken be planted in this land. S- stay here as if for years right? Use your act upon this place. Use your agency, build up Zion. And then he says, he says to, to, to his, his dear sweet wife, who he's worked so hard to create a comfortable life for, which I think so many of us can resonate with. He says, he left the decision of coming to Missouri or remaining in Ohio to her, but warned her about, quote, Many privations here, which you and I have not been much used to for years. Yeah. Can you see why uh, I love Edward Partridge? Yeah. That's beautiful. And, And then, and what does Lydia do? What does his wife do? We're coming to Zion. Zion is worth all the sacrifice. Preparing to be in the presence of God is worth all the sacrifice. And and it contextualizes, you know, section 55 uh, or um, 54 it is um, about Copley. Verse five, woe to him by whom this offense cometh, for it had been better for him that he had been drowned in the depths of the sea. I've been thinking about that phrase, not knowing what to do with it, to tell you the truth, because it sounds so brutal and harsh. But but when you think about the call to Zion, I get this sense that what God is, is, is perhaps saying is, if you knew what you were giving up by choosing anything but Zion, but the kingdom of God, but being in the presence of God, you would rather be have a millstone hung about your neck and be dragged to the bottom of the sea if you just got it if you Mm. just understood it you would rather do that lehman copley i know that your wealth i know your land is worth some things right i mean it's worth some things but if you just got a grasp of zion you would rather be drowned in the depths of the sea then give this up. And what does Lydia do? She comes. 
she comes mm. because she's got the vision. She's got the view of the temple. She's got this promise of endowment, this promise of spiritual power and strength, this promise of being a part of, of, of the remedy of, of all manner of situations. You know, atheists often say, Oh, if God was all knowing, if he was all powerful, if he is all kind, if he's all merciful, if he was really all that you say he was, there is no way he could look on the pain and suffering of his children like he does. And sometimes we try to defend that, but I think God's answer to that question is exactly what we're studying now. It is, I have made the rich the poor are constantly before me. And you, if you will just treat your neighbor with a type of Christian love, the earth is full and, and overflowing with enough. If we could just get Zion in the minds of, of, of us as humans on this planet, there would be an end of global starvation. There would be an end of, of infant mortality. There would be an end to um, the modern slave trade and sex trafficking. There would be an end to this because we would love our brothers and sisters as God is asking us to in, in a Christian life. And it would end. And it would usher in a millennial reign where God would be with us. That to me inspires me. That is his answer. It inspires me, right? And it's like, let's miracles, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Like, let's change the world in the name of Christ. Let's be the leaven that, that, that raises the whole lump. Like we can, we can do this. We can change the world. But as members of the church, it's going to require us to act. And it's going to require us to be planted as if for years, to act as if for years in these places. We've already been given the formula. We already know it. Yeah. But it's going to require not the 800 mile, but the yeah. 800 foot conversation with the neighbor. I hope that we can be better at expressing love for each other, right? I mean, how I, I still remember Steve Brimley. I'm going to just call him out. He came up to me one time and he's like, hey, I just wanted you to know that that I just really admire you as a father. It's, I just, I, I appreciate how it seems like you love your kids. That Steve Brimley will forever be a, a name that I will I will hold sacred and, and love dearly for that one comment that he probably doesn't even remember. Can't we just send a text and say to someone, hey, you are a blessing in my life. Hey, Bishop, I know you're over, overburdened. I just want you to know I, I love you. Um, hey, home teacher who, who just dropped off some goodies for my kid's birthday. I just want you to know like you are absolutely making a difference. It's changing us. It's We, we love you. We appreciate you. It's another brick in Zion, right? Another brick in Zion, yeah. yeah. Yeah, do you remember from last conference the story that was told about the young woman um, who noticed an older sister who for the first time came to church alone she because her husband left? She sat by her. Uh, she, just, she, she, she kept looking back, right? And then and then she just, after sacrament ended, she just went up and, and, 
And the woman said, I, I hope she doesn't come back here. I'm going to cry. And she came back to her and just said, I can see, sister, that this Sunday is a hard Sunday for you. I just love you and gave her a hug. And how this sister began to rely on that Christian outreach. It doesn't, President Faust said that every day brings constant opportunities for, for selfless service. And it can be as simple as a smile. Sister Craig said she decided I will not look my phone in, in a grocery yeah. store line and ends up having a great conversation. The man says, oh, I didn't tell anyone it's my birthday today. And yeah. she said all of that because I just looked up from my phone. That's Zion. Ugh. You can see how we've become more individualized. We, we become more individualized in this in this world of social media and and phones. And that is seemingly the exact opposite of God's call. He does not want an individualized people. He wants a other-centered, Christ-centered. As I have loved you, love one another. Like President Nelson's, anytime you do anything that helps anyone take a step toward making covenants with the Savior, you are helping to gather Israel. And he made it so simple. Anytime you do anything that helps anyone, and it wasn't get all the way to the temple, even take a step toward coming closer. So I love this discussion. So we've spent some time talking about Edward Partridge, and I've, I've told you about this argument with that he has with Joseph Smith, and I've told you about the difficulties of Missouri and and what they were facing and, and other things. Um, that that's that's the reality. And, and he asked Lydia to come. All those different things. One of the most beautiful things about Edward Partridge is his repentance and um, and to share his repentance, th- that he really takes the Lord's rebuke seriously and becomes a new creature. I want to share with you a song, and it is one of my favorite songs. Um, it is written by Edward Partridge. It's uh, And in light of his lack of vision, I just want you to pay attention to this, this song and also a connection with temple and being in the presence of Christ. The song is called Let Zion in Her Beauty Rise. Yeah. And knowing the background now, see if you don't love this song too. Let Zion in her beauty rise. Her light begins to shine. Ere long her king will rend the skies, majestic and divine. The gospel spreading through the land, a people to prepare to meet the Lord and Enoch's band triumphant in the air. Ye heralds sound the golden trump to earth's remotest bound. Go spread the news from pole to pole in all the nations round that Jesus in the clouds above with hosts of angels too will soon appear his saints to save his enemies subdue. That glorious rest will then commence, which prophets did foretell, when saints will reign with Christ on earth and in his presence dwell. A thousand years, O glorious day, O Lord, prepare my heart to stand with thee on Zion's mount and nevermore to part. That's, that's beautiful. That's our friend. That's our our friend, Edward Partridge. Yeah, I'll line up with that guy any day. <laughs> Can you see how every single stanza connects Zion 
our agency and the presence of God. Every single one of them in a very, very powerful way. Yeah. So, so, so I think that's one of the things I wanted to make sure that, that we got out of there that kind of wraps up this, this kind of story, kind of brings it all full circle. The other thing that I wanted to bring up really quickly, Ezra Booth, it seems to me that Ezra Booth in some ways is offended partially in behalf of Edward Partridge. Edward Partridge and, and Joseph Smith have an argument. Ezra Booth oversees it and is offended partially perhaps in behalf of of. Edward Partridge, and, and this is one of the things that leads to his disconnection with the church. I wonder how often we do the same thing, particularly when it comes to church history stories. Now, uh, we, we it, clearly not everyone in the early church stays active in the church. That's that's clearly not the case. But anytime I, I study a history, a, a topic from church history, I want to make sure that I disconnect myself from cultural questions and reconnect myself with perhaps some divine uh, motivated questions. For example, uh, the priesthood ban and its removal. Culture would have me say, why did it start? When did it start? Who started it? Were they racist? Was this because of, of racist tendencies? That's what culture would have me ask. Why did it end? Why did it take so long? What what was the suffering of the people that endured this? I think another question to ask is, how did God provide compensatory blessings for those individuals in the church that were most intimately impacted by this priesthood ban? There's a website that deals specifically with the first the converts of the church during the first hundred years of the church that were of African descent. And it's, uh, it's, it's created by the university of Utah and, um, uh, Paul Reeve, who's a, a member of the church actually is the one that that's created this website. And his goal is to gather all the information possible on every convert that joined the church of African descent in the first hundred years of the church's existence. In connection with that, he has, he has uh, provided statistics and information about these, these people and what we know about them from, from, from his research. 64, almost 65%. And 80, almost 85% of individuals that were baptized in the first hundred years of the church and of African descent stayed in the church, remained in the church. Think of that. That is amazing. And, and, And instead of perhaps maybe the best way to honor these people is perhaps not to be offended in their behalf, but to be inspired because of their faith. When you begin learning about those 65 to 85% roughly uh, of people that that stayed in the church, you, you read the testimony of Jane Manning James and see if that doesn't question some of your assumptions about God compensating people in their moments of difficulty. 
it's it's helped me to instead of I, 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 as a historian, I, I've looked at all the other cultural questions. I, I'm not saying ignore those cultural questions. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that there's another question that we can answer, and that is, let's read their words. And let's see what their faith story is. And Jane Manning James is one of my favorite stories in the church. Uh, it Her faith and testimony warms my soul. It warms my soul. What's the website called? It's Century of Black Mormons. So this idea, Ezra Booth is offended in behalf of, of, of Edward Partridge. Edward Partridge and Joseph Smith are completely fine. And, and Edward Partridge lives the rest of his life faithful to the church. But yet Ezra, Partridge, or Ezra Booth leaves the church and allows this moment to canker his soul. The same thing is true for me with plural marriage. I've actually been strengthened in my faith studying plural marriage because getting to the testimonials of people, one of the my favorite ones is Joseph has a man who um, he, he teaches plural marriage to and says, I need you to talk to your sister about this. I feel like the Lord needs me to take your sister and wife. And, and this man, I love this. This is real. This is real church history. He says, in effect, he says, um, this is a paraphrase, but he says, Joseph, have I ever come to find out that you do this to dishonor my my sister? I will kill you. And he looks at Joseph and he says, brother, you will not know that. You will never know that I do this to dishonor your sister because I don't. What you will know, though, is the truth of this principle. And this is how it will come. And then the account goes on to say that that he, he went to his sister and he gained all the confidence he could open his mouth to begin talking about the subject that he did not want to do, right? And he said the light and the truth that came in that moment, the connection with God, God sustaining this was so powerful that he and his sister were able to provide support and encouragement based on that testimony for the rest of their lives. And and, and to me, I think, I I don't know if I could do that. But I honor them that they had that much strength and faith to do that. So this idea of Ezra Booth has, has been very strengthening to me. I, I've, I've always just tried to make sure that I'm not being offended in behalf of someone else, but I'm, I'm trying to understand their faith story and their narrative on their own terms and allow these people that, that I would say, oh man, they were, they were ill-treated. I want them to speak of their faith on their terms not on my terms. Wow. Excellent. Uh, McLean, Dr. Heward, you are a teacher. You're a scholar. You've made the history of the of this church, teaching the scriptures. You've made it your career, your life's work, uh, and you've studied it uh, a lot. Um, you know all the ins and outs of the history of this church um, and um, the ups and downs of Joseph Smith and his contemporaries. Uh, John and I would love for our listeners to hear your personal thoughts on the restoration, on Joseph Smith, um, and what it's done for you personally, not only as a professional, but also as a husband and father. There's, uh, there's two things that I want to uh, mention here. And to tell you the truth, they're quotes. Uh, you've heard me quote from a lot of different people, um, because there's, there's a lot of people that, uh, that have influenced me in this regard. I had an experience in graduate school um, 
I won't bore you with all the details, but but I came home one day super stressed. And my wife called me over to the computer. She was on Facebook. And a friend of hers had just left the church. Just come out on Facebook. I'm leaving the church. And she said, this is, this is close to, if not a direct quote, she said, I've read it all. And I, I, I don't want to be too, uh, to, to, to be quite honest with you, my reaction was maybe a little bit unchristian. I, I got rather um, upset <laughs> because I'd, I'd, I'd spent, I, I was spending hours and hours and hours and hours and hours every week studying history, religious history, and and was in Mormon studies classes, reading book after book after book. You know, every week we were going through a different book. And I just kind of flipped out thinking that what an audacious claim that you have read it all. And that feeling is, has stayed with me a little bit. Um, the, the church historian, Rick Turley, gave him some advice and was talking to him. And Rick Turley said this to Marlon K. Jensen. He said, don't study church history too little. I have found that to be the case personally. I have found that the the deeper I go in church history, the more inspiration. I, I hope that you've, I, to, to be very honest with you, I, I hope you felt that. I, I find in the, 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 the church, the doctrine of the church, a call to be better than I am, a call to be more than I am, to 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 become the type of person that I always want to be. Um, uh, and, and then speaking specifically about history and church history, there's there's one other person that that has become a hero for me. Um, I, I shouldn't say that. There's many other other people that have become. His, uh, heroes to me in this in this avenue, but this is Spencer Fluman, and he um, he's a professional historian. He's educated in in one of one of the the very best history programs in the nation. He's the head the, the executive director of the the Maxwell Institute. It's really a, a powerful historian. He said, "I am not." a committed Latter-day Saint in spite of my careful study of LDS history, but because of it. He then said this, he said, I am, I am, I am a witness to history's powerful capacity to mold and shape us as disciples of Jesus Christ. In straining to see clearly into the past dark glass, we can come to see ourselves and the Lord more clearly even acknowledging the very human difficulties in our own stories. And he knows them. Spencer Fluman knows them. He, he, he knows, he studied anti-Mormonism for a decade and wrote a book about it. He knows the difficult stories in our past. He says, quote, I bear witness that there is more than enough inspiration and edification to compensate. Indeed, our history is a reservoir with spiritual resources sufficient to feed us spiritually for a lifetime and beyond. Hmm. Uh, I feel that. I absolutely feel that. Um, um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for the, the history of our church. We are a history-keeping people. And and I I, I bear my testimony at, um, that, the, that Joseph Smith was not perfect, 
And that provides me with so much encouragement that maybe God can help me to bring about the cause of Zion just like he helped Joseph in his weaknesses. It helps me to see that that uh, I, I, I can do some good and I can be a part of this great restoration of God's kingdom on the earth. <clears throat> I, I think those are the things that I would, I would say. Um, I, love the, I love the church. I love church history. I laugh about stories all the time. Uh, I'm entertained by the church, church history, but I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully and more importantly changed by church history. And I hope I'm a better husband. I hope I'm a better father. I, I hope I'm a better teacher. I hope I'm a better disciple and, 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 and child of God. Absolutely beautiful. We want to thank Dr. McLean Heward. We were so uplifted and taught and educated and inspired today. Uh, we are just so grateful you've been here. Thank you. Thank you. I've so prayed much. that that would be the case, Hank. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So th- I appreciate you saying that very much. Absolutely. Without question. Uh, we are grateful to you, our listeners. We, we wouldn't be doing this without your support. We're grateful to our executive producers, Steve and Shannon Sorensen, and our production crew, which is growing. Uh, David Perry, Lisa Spice, Jamie Nielsen, Kyle Nelson, Will Stoughton, Andrew Morton, who we call Morty, and now Maria Hilton. Thank you so much for joining us on our Uh, episode of follow him today and we hope you'll come back next time